Hello everyone, it's Takuya here, and what you are going to be hearing today is something a little bit different. You can probably already guess based off the title or the description or whatever other information that I put in at this time, but just as a heads up for anyone who did not read that and just clicked it because they thought that they saw, oh hey, it's a brand new History of Everything podcast episode, well you are partially right. What I'm going to start doing now is that I'm going to be taking the audio from a number of my different YouTube videos that I am creating, and I'm going to put that audio in here as a kind of bonus episode for you all. Oftentimes, this, in comparison to the full podcast episodes, may not have as much detail on the full general topic of the week that we are going to be talking about, but what it is going to have is going to have very specific information about one particular aspect of it. In this case here, since we have been talking about for the past couple weeks different characters in history and their complexities, I wanted to do a deep dive into Nero and how he really is a more complex figure than we give him credit for. So everyone, if you want to see the actual video that I posted of this, then check out the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel, and I'm not going to have nearly as long of an intro in the future bonus episodes that will be going up weekly on the different videos that we are doing that week. This is just kind of a one-time thing where I'm giving this long of an introduction to explain it to you all that are listening. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Hello everyone, Stucky here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into another complex character of history, someone who possibly has been given a much worse rap for their story than what they probably deserved. What we are going to be doing is talking about the famous Emperor Nero, the man who was enthroned only at the young age of 16 in 54 AD, the man who would go on to rule for nearly a decade and a half, and over the course of that rule, would be regarded as a tyrant, a deviant, and every other kind of horrible thing that you can imagine. Someone whose name is now synonymous with decadence, and that is a legacy that has lasted over 2,000 years. Whether we are talking matricide, exoricide, mass arson, embezzlement, or mass assault of every kind of variety that you could imagine, the list of crimes of Nero, as it's regarded in history, goes on and on and on, making him easily one of the worst emperors in history, and quite possibly from that, one of the worst human beings ever. This depiction is probably not actually true, and instead is the result of years and years of propaganda designed to besmirch his image. Nero was a human, something that a lot of people don't seem to realize as they deem him to be the Antichrist on Earth, and humans are significantly more complex than we give them credit for. And that is precisely why we're going to be talking about him today. But okay, who exactly was Emperor Nero? What is the story of him, and why do we regard him to be the horrible monster that he's remembered as in history? Well, my friends, the Nero that we are familiar with was born as Lucius Domitius Anabarbus, back on December 15th in the year 37 AD, in the coastal Italian town of Antium. His father was a man by the name of Gnaeus Domitius Anabarbus, who was the son of Antonia Major, which was actually the daughter of Emperor Octavia, which was Emperor Augustus's sister, and Mark Antony. Nero's mother was a woman known as Agrippina the Younger. Unfortunately, though, for young Nero, his father would end up dying of an illness when he was only three years old. And at the time, you had a certain man on the throne by the name of Caligula, who saw the family as a threat potentially to his rule. And so as a result, he exiled them from Italy itself. As part of this banishment, the land that Nero was set to inherit from his father was actually confiscated by Caligula, permanently dooming the relationship between the two. Not that that permanence would exactly last all that long, because in 41 BC, Caligula would end end up getting assassinated. And as a result of that, Emperor Claudius would come into power and Nero's family was allowed to return back to the city. Fast forward a few years and in 49 AD, his mother Agrippina was able to actually marry Emperor Claudius and Nero was only 11 or 12 years old at the time that this would occur. However, only two years later, around 51 AD, when he was 14 years old, he would start to appear in public life and start to learn the different ways of politics and how to enact degrees of control. When he turned 
16, Nero would then be married to Claudius's daughter, Claudia Octavia, which would strengthen his connection with the Imperial dynasty. Over the course of these years, the entire time that this was happening, Agrippina was constantly harassing Claudius to adopt Nero as his son, but not only to do so, but to simultaneously place him in the Imperial will as the heir to the throne, even over his own son Britannicus. And it seems, according to the stories, that finally, after years of constant nagging, that Claudius would do precisely that, only for him to then pretty shortly afterward suspiciously die. It is very possible that at this time Agrippina poisoned him or did something to cause his death in order to make sure that her son would be able to inherit the throne before potentially Claudius would be able to change his mind and put Britannicus on the throne instead. But regardless of the cause of Claudius's actual death, it doesn't really matter, because now you had a young 16-year-old boy, Nero, who was on the throne as the Roman Emperor. So then you're probably wondering right here, does the monster, does the story of it all begin here? Well, no, actually. Nero's early years as Emperor were actually considered to be pretty much a golden age. Under Nero's rule, the arts would flourish, and Rome would experience an unprecedented level of peace and prosperity. He was initially adored by the people, who would consider him to be a kind and approachable young man, one who was youthful and powerful and prepared to tackle on the issues of Rome. They would hold extravagantly lavish games, plays, chariot races, concerts, anything you could possibly imagine. With the gladiatorial fights, he was a hugely popular figure, and the people loved him for the entertainment that he would put on. Not to mention, of course, at the same time, he would reduce taxes, which is always something that was pleasant for people to experience. And then even when it came to the elites of Rome, he actually restored a lot of the Roman Senate's power that had been whittled away slowly by the previous emperors who had been in charge. He was returning authority back to them, which is not something that you would typically expect of a tyrant to do in the first place. However, as his reign would continue, as the story goes, Nero would gradually over time start to show his true colors, gradually adopting a more tyrannical side that would begin to emerge with the first issue being his mother. Almost immediately after Nero had taken over the throne, his relationship with his mother, Agrippina, started to rapidly deteriorate. Once it is that he had actually become emperor, she would continuously try to manipulate him over the course of the years and effectively rule the empire through him as a kind of puppet. As she lost authority, according to the stories, it seems that she became rather desperate and even tried to do things such as seduce him and then engage in an incestuous relationship in an effort to control him. At least again, according to the stories. But of course, Nero wasn't exactly happy about this and would severely resent her influence, and over time from this would begin to try to distance himself from her, even doing things such as banning her from the imperial palace itself, and also from attending public events with him. And so when Agrippina realized that she wasn't really going to be able to control Nero anymore, she instead tried to focus all of her support into Britannicus, the son of the previous emperor, in order to try and control him. However, Britannicus would unexpectedly die after having a banquet with Nero, and it's possible that Nero had put him to death in an effort to stop any kind of threat to his power. It's after this point that Nero would decide that his mother was simply too dangerous to keep around and would try to remove her for good. According to some of the stories, what he had tried to do afterwards was to install an intricate device in her bedroom ceiling that would collapse on top of her and suffocate her. But after this whole thing proved to be too intricate and complex and it just did not seem to want to work, he called off this plan. The next thing that he did is that he ordered a special boat be built that would collapse upon on command and be sunk, hopefully drowning her inside of it. According to the stories, he hoped that by doing this, it would make the entire thing look like some giant accident, an unfortunate incident. However, when Agrippina fell victim to this ploy, she ended up surviving because she was able to escape the boat and simply swim to shore. And so frustrated by the failure of all of these different elaborate ploys that he had to off his mother, instead what Nero decided to apparently do is to resort to the old school method of just having a guy stab her repeatedly, which, you know, eventually actually 
worked. But the thing is, following the death of his mother, Nero's behavior began to rapidly decline, something that over time was becoming more and more noticeable to the people, and simultaneously was going to lead to only further troubles with his marriages. And yes, there was going to be multiple marriages. You see, my friends, Nero's first wife, Octavia, was someone who was pretty popular with the Roman people, but despite that, over time, Nero would gradually grow more distant from her, and would start to fall in love with a completely different person, someone who he'd want to be with, Poppea Sabina. Now, considering her family lineage, it wasn't like Nero was just going to simply be able to divorce his wife on whatever grounds he wanted. He had to be more serious about this. So as the story goes, what Nero did is that he publicly accused his first wife of unfaithfulness, and then he would use this as justification in order to be able to divorce her. Then, afterwards, he would have her exiled from Rome, and eventually murdered. The funny thing is, even after he did this, he still could not actually go and marry Poppea. The reason being is that she was already married to one of Nero's men. She was a married woman, with the guy that she was married to being one of Nero's men, a guy by the name of Marcus Salvius Otho. So in order to solve this very serious dilemma, what Nero did was something very smart. He simply promoted Otho to be the governor of Lusitania, which is in modern-day Portugal, and have him sent off to the other side of the empire, on the outskirts of it. Pretty soon after Otho departed, Poppea was then able to publicly divorce him, and 12 days later after this would end up marrying Nero. Or rather, this would occur 12 days after Nero would finalize his divorce with Octavia, so you know, working even quicker there. Unfortunately for them, as the story goes, the marriage was not exactly going to be a happy one, however. Reportedly, according to the stories, there was a lot of fighting, and while Poppea was pregnant with Nero's child, she ended up getting into an argument with him that resulted in him kicking her in the stomach, resulting in the death of not only her child, but simultaneously herself. This is something that the people of Rome would look upon in horror as the rumor mills begin to swill around the city. And while this is definitely bad, the worst was not yet to come. Because so it was that on the 18th of July in the year 64 AD, that a fire would break out in the suburbs of Rome, which would very quickly burn out of control and begin to consume the rest of the city. The Great Fire of Rome would last for approximately six days, and out of the 14 different districts inside of the city, 10 of them would be damaged almost beyond repair, with three completely and utterly destroyed. Hundreds of civilians would die over the course of this, and many, many, many thousands would lose their homes, lose practically everything. The ancient sources following this would say that Nero was actually the one who was responsible for the fire. The reason being is that he wanted to clear space inside of the crowded city in order to be able to build a new palace for himself and show off his power and prestige. And as the city burned, again, according to the stories, he would go and play musical instruments and recite poetry and sing while watching it burn. All things which would serve as inspiration for his work and his poetic talents. Of course, from all of this happening, the people of Rome were extremely upset and were looking for someone to blame. And so in order to deflect blame for the fire from himself, what Nero instead did was target the Christians. Christianity as a religion was gradually starting to grow more and more in the empire, and it was seen as a threat to the political establishment. So he blamed the destruction of the city on this new faith, on this new religion, specifically because they would not honor the traditional Roman gods, which, of course, is something that would end up bringing misfortune to the city. What would follow is that for years, Nero would launch massive persecutions against the Christians of Rome, and as part of these persecutions, Christians would be tortured and killed in public spectacles. Some Christians would be wrapped in animal skins and then fed to wild animals. Others would be covered in tar, and during dinner parties that Nero would host, according to the stories, he would then bring them out and light them up on fire in front of his guests. 
Which apparently, mind you, despite that story, is apparently not the worst thing that could happen at one of Nero's parties. Nero was a man who was famous for never wearing the same garment twice. He was always exceptionally extravagant. And it seems, again from the stories, that he was a severe sexual deviant as well. According to the stories, there was a favored freedman that he had by the name of Sporus, who Nero had castrated and then subsequently would marry in a ceremony where he would dress himself up as the husband and have Sporus, while castrated, dressed as the bride. Later, Nero would apparently repeat this exact same ceremony, except he would reverse it without actually castrating himself, having Sporus dressed as the groom and himself dressed as the bride. What would then follow was a banquet in which he would consummate the marriage on a couch in front of all of his guests. So as I said, not the weirdest thing that could potentially happen at a Nero party. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices... You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Still, all of that being said, when it came to the fire, people were going to continue to blame Nero. And so following the vast destruction of the city that had been caused by the fire, Nero did have great plans to rebuild the city. And in order to fund these various different building projects, even though the rest of the city had pretty much been destroyed, Nero would go on to raise taxes, something that for the people would prove to be a very unpopular move. The most notorious of all of these new buildings that were being built was an exceptionally expensive new palace for Nero himself, something that was so large that it was going to require several city blocks in order to build it in the first place. The palace was so impressive that it became something that was known as the Domus Aure, or the Golden House. It was said to have had ceilings that were covered in gold, an artificial lake that was big enough to actually sail boats up into, and a large garden that was full of all different kinds of exotic animals. To many of the observers that were watching all of this, especially since it was fresh after a fire, it seemed that Nero was more interested in building a palace for himself rather than actually taking care of the people of Rome, which, of course, would strengthen the idea that he had caused it in the first place, all in order to build his palace. And, per the stories, the people of Rome simply had enough. Nero's vast expanses and different building projects would end up practically bankrupting Rome, and many Romans by this point had simply lost patience with the emperor's slow response to the issues of the fire. And so it was that in the year 68 AD that two different governors would end up rising up in revolt against the emperor, the first being Vindex in Gaul, and the second one being Galba in Spain. Now when word of the revolt reached him, Nero was able to send an army in order to defeat the forces in Gaul. However, Galba's revolt in Spain would only continue to grow. The Senate would eventually go on to declare Nero to be an enemy of the public, and simultaneously throw their support behind Galba. Also, at the same time, the prefect of the Praetorian Guard, Sabinus, would simultaneously defect going to Galba himself and betraying Nero. It was at this point that Nero realized that he had lost complete control. He didn't really have the military, he didn't have the Senate, he didn't have anything behind him that was going to be able to support him for the throne, and as a result he had to flee. Disguising himself, he was able to escape out of the city and make his way all the way over to a villa that was owned by one of his freedmen. But this eventually would be 
surrounded by soldiers and the Emperor trapped inside. In his panic, Nero would go on to try and off himself, but his attempt would not work, and as a result would have to turn to a slave in order to finish the job for him. Nero would end up dying on the 9th of June, 68 AD, at the ripe old age of 30 years old. He was the last of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, the one that began all those years earlier with the rise of the original Augustus. And that right there is the story as we know it of Nero. But the problem is, as I said earlier, that it's really not all that simple. That is way too big of an oversimplification for all of this. And we're going to get into why and why he was such a complex character, and the reason why over the course of making this episode, I've been continuously saying as the story goes. First off, there's this whole issue with his mother. Agrippina the Younger was a fascinating woman, especially in the sense that she was one of the few people in Rome that there really wasn't much that could compare to her. Forget other women, even a lot of the men wouldn't be able to compare to the power and influence that she wielded within society. She was the granddaughter of none other than the first Roman Emperor Augustus. She was the sister of a previous Emperor Caligula. She was the wife of his successor Claudius. And she was the mother of a reigning Emperor Nero. However, for all of her imperial pedigree and accomplishments and anything that she was capable of doing, there was one glaring flaw that was always going to limit her. The fact that she had been born a woman. You have to understand that in the minds of the ancient Roman people, a woman in power was something of an anathema. There was a genuine belief that a woman was not supposed to be in charge, that the only way that they would be able to get into power in the first place is by using underhanded methods such as, well, sex things. And so since Agrippina could not sit on the throne, but her son could, this meant that in order to have any kind of power in society whatsoever, she would have to control things through a kind of puppet emperor. She would have to put someone in charge that she would have influence over. You can see this extraordinary influence that is clearly visible on early coins because she is depicted with her son the emperor, something that you would normally not see with women. Simultaneously, there were huge marble reliefs that portray Agrippina crowning her son as the emperor, something that would imply that she was the real power that was making it happen in the first place. The level of power that she wielded within society was unprecedented, and the people of Rome, in particular the senatorial elite, did not like this at all. Which brings us to the whole incest issue. These allegations reflect the fact that there was a very unusual political situation that was going on in Rome at the time, and the fact that Agrippina had such an elevated position at court meant that it was a threat to Roman senatorial power and their way of life. The elites of Rome despised a woman being in power, Power, and any number of rumors would specifically be created in order to try and weaken her impact and hurt her in the eyes of the Roman public. So the incest allegation? More than likely complete fabrication. Which then brings us to her death, which if you remember that whole issue with the trapdoor and the sinking boat and all that stuff that is very overly dramatic and sounds like it belongs out of a play, well that's probably because it was straight out of a play, a complete fabrication that was meant for drama. There is no actual proof of any of these events occurring. Instead, the only thing that we can say with any degree of certainty is that Nero would have his mother stabbed to death. And the funny part about all of that, which I wouldn't necessarily say that the murdering of a mother is very funny, but this entire action may not have been the act of a mad ruler, but rather something that was done specifically in order to appease the senatorial class. You have to remember that matricide, the murdering of a mother, was something that was seen as a terrible crime in ancient Rome. But the fact that Nero faced no real back or anything after the death of his mother, the fact that he maintained power in the first place, that in itself shows that the Senate more than likely supported this action in the first place, and that they wanted her gone in order to be able to maintain their own power. Of course, the mother thing being set aside, there really is no other death that is as controversial as that of Poppea. Because as we said, according to the stories, Nero supposedly kicked her while she was pregnant, causing her to miscarry and for her to die. But the thing is, while this entire story is certainly scandalous and tragic, it probably is is just that, 
a story. We can't say for certain, but that appears to be the case, and it follows a simple train of logic. The entire story really does paint Nero as a monster, but we can't really forget that Nero was a person who was deeply in love with Popeya. There is another, possibly more logical option. It is possible, I hate to say these words, but it is possible that Popeya, who was in a later stage of pregnancy, ended up dying during childbirth or from complications from this late-term pregnancy. We have to remember that in the ancient world, this was something that was all too common. There is no actual proof of any of these events taking place in the first place, and we really have to remember that the idea of a tyrant killing his own wife and child, that that is one of the archetypes that is used in different Greek and Roman tragedies, something that is used specifically in order to be able to paint people as a tyrant. This is something that is used as more of a literary technique than an actual historical story. In addition, there's enough evidence that Nero was actually deeply in love with Popeya and was desperate for a male heir. The idea of abusing his deeply pregnant wife, causing her to miscarry and die, is something that is not only highly illogical in the first place, it is downright mad. Which yes, people are then going to turn around and say, but he was mad, he was insane, but was he really? At least not to that degree. The idea of a ruler severely hurting his own wife while she is pregnant when he needs a male heir is an anathema to any kind of real political thought. It just doesn't seem like it would be something that is likely. And not to mention, the last part of the puzzle is that after she died, he still loved her. Not only would she receive a massive state funeral, but simultaneously she would end up being embalmed and deified, turned into a literal god. That level of devotion is just not something that you'd have expected of a mad king who wished to do away with his previous spouse's legacy. And then finally, there's the whole issue with the fire, which is a bit of a mixed bag, because it is simultaneously made up and also unfortunately true. We know that that Nero did not actually set Rome on fire, no matter what the ancient histories tell us. In fact, when the Great Fire of Rome broke out on July 18, 64 AD, Nero was actually resting in his imperial villa at Anzio, more than 30 miles away from Rome at the time that it all broke out. When the messenger arrived to the villa in order to report what happened, the mad emperor did not jump around with glee or anything that you would possibly expect. In fact, what he did is immediately return to Rome where he led the relief efforts in order to try and save as much of the city as possible. He opened the campus marshes and its lavish gardens to the homeless, he constructed temporary lodgings for the fire victims, he secured food for them, and he had as many buildings as he possibly could around the area torn down in order to try and keep in the fire, to create fire break lines. Even after all of this was done, he ended up implementing extremely strict building codes in order to make sure that another fire like this would not be able to happen again. But despite his efforts, we do know that they were largely unsuccessful in preventing the destruction of the majority of the city. The easily flammable and very poorly constructed buildings of this time period simply went up in smoke. And unfortunately for Nero, with the building that he would do after the fact, including constructing this palace, it is not something that would ever endear him to the public that would see this grand expense as something that was just that, a grand and unnecessary expense something that would also cast doubt on whether or not he was the one who was responsible for the fire in the first place. Furthermore, the fact that Nero persecuted as many Christians as he did is not something that would end up helping him later on in the histories. Him using them as a scapegoat and the persecutions that would follow would not only not distract the public, but simultaneously you have to remember that in the centuries that would follow, Christianity would gradually take over the Roman Empire and come to dominate it, meaning that any of the writers that were looking back for centuries to come would see him as... 
well, what he is kind of remembered as by Christianity, being the model antichrist. But in the end, the thing that really matters is the split view of the public for how they felt about the emperor. While the Senate did end up hating Nero, the emperor would simultaneously enjoy great popularity among the people of Rome, and also beyond in all of the varying provinces. For instance, Nero was a person who enjoyed huge popularity in Greece, Thanks to his love of culture, art, the games, participating in the Olympics, all these varying things, the people loved him for all of the different events and spectacles that he would put on. Simultaneously, he is a man who enacted tax and currency reforms, facts that made him very popular among the people, but simultaneously would hurt his opinion from the Senate. And in addition, besides his monumental palace complex, the emperor had also built a series of other complex structures all around the city, including massive new marketplaces and a huge bathhouse which was open for the entire public to use. No longer did the ordinary citizens have to use smaller, more meager bathhouses. Instead, they could have grand and opulent ones just like the wealthy would utilize. But the unfortunate reality is that making the common and ordinary people love you is not something that is going to end up really shaping how you are viewed in history, at least in ancient times. The wealthy and powerful powerful individuals that he would seize power from were the ones whose authority was being challenged and the ones who would have authority after his death. These were the men who would end up writing the histories once he was long gone. And when it is the people in power who hate you, well, you can guarantee that the stories that are going to be told about you are not exactly good. Not to mention that following his death, what would happen is that the entire empire would break apart into civil war, as you would see the year of four emperors follow. From this, once it was all over, a new dynasty would end up taking over in comparison to the old Julio Claudian one. And for any new ruling family that is in charge, it's very important to discredit the previous rulers in order to solidify their own claim to the throne itself. Something that, from the stories that we're capable of seeing, seems to have happened to a great degree. And thus it is that Nero is a significantly more complex character in history than we give him credit for. Mad and tyrannical? Possibly. But simultaneously, many of the stories that are told about him are possibly exaggerations at best, or outright fabrications at their worst. History is something that is significantly more complex than we give it credit for. So I'm going to ask you this, audience, right here before I ask you to like, comment, subscribe, but to please keep in mind that you need to be careful with what it is that you see, hear, and read. Everyone, thank you very much for watching. Everyone, thank you for watching. This has been Stakuyi with the History of Everything podcast. I ask that you like, comment, subscribe, and please let me know in the comment section below what other kinds of characters from history that you want us to discuss. Because again, history is significantly more complex, and I really do appreciate all the love and support that you guys show for me in this channel. Thank you everyone for watching, and I hope to see you all next time. Goodbye, everyone.